When police came to talk to him, Jason Armstrong did not try to disguise his contempt for Corey Kaufman. He's a, he's a thief, so I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like thieves, you know what I mean? So I guarantee there ain't nobody ever said nothing good about him. You know, in the deal list, nobody, nobody liked uh, Corey, to be honest with you. Jason Armstrong had had some brushes with the law going back to the 90s. He'd been arrested for domestic violence, though the charge was dropped. On his police report, his occupation was listed as welder. He was known to buy and resell cars and to host frequent parties at his home in Denaire, across from a big dirt lot. It was a few miles from where Corey Kaufman had disappeared in early 2012. Armstrong remembered Kaufman as, quote, salty and rude, an inveterate thief and a tweaker, meaning a meth addict. Uh, you're not going to find nobody on planet Earth that likes him because he's always jumping everybody's fences and stealing their shit. And, right. You know, he, uh, you know he, he's up to, he just always is up to no good. Armstrong insisted that he had not killed him, that at 47 years old, he was too old even to fight. Okay. Why would I kill that dude, Corey? Okay, let me finish up. Let me finish. Well, the only thing I do wrong is smoke a little weed. I haven't killed nobody in all my life, and I'm old. May I ask you a question? Yes, if you knew anything about it, would you tell us? You know, I probably would, honestly and truly. You know what I mean? Jason Armstrong had not been arrested in connection with Kaufman's death, but nine others had, including Modesto defense attorney Frank Carson. Now, defense attorneys were battling through a marathon preliminary hearing, trying to persuade a judge to throw out the case. One of their strategies was to show that in their blind zeal to prosecute Carson, their longtime nemesis, investigators had ignored strong alternate theories. I know everybody around. I've been around the block, seen a million things. I know everybody from the Hells Angels to the Job Witnesses. Right. You know what I mean? Right. But I don't kill people. Jason Armstrong's admitted biker gang connections made people wary about crossing him, and he acknowledged that he'd had a very specific beef with the dead man. Armstrong said he believed that Corey Kaufman had helped to rip off a friend's business on East Avenue in Turlock in early 2012. Corey had stole a bunch of his tools. A local street character told the police he'd been brutally beaten by Armstrong and his friends because they suspected he'd stolen the tools with Kaufman. There was more in the eyes of defense attorneys to connect Jason Armstrong to Corey Kaufman's death. Turned out that Armstrong frequented the area of the vast Stanislaus National Forest where Kaufman's scattered bones had been found. How many times have you been up in that area? I want to literally say, and I'm not trying to condemn myself, but a thousand. I'm, I, anytime I get a chance, I go up there. How many times have you been in that specific area where Corey Kaufman's remains have been found? On that road, you know, or past it. How many times have you been there? I, if I was guessing, eight or ten, but it's, that's what I'm saying. Not long ago, Armstrong said, he was in those mountains and ran into the very hunter who had discovered Kaufman's remains and was directed to the spot. Armstrong said he took a look out of curiosity. He saw that police had removed the bones and replaced them with evidence flags. I think uh, bare minimum, bare minimum, Jason knows exactly what happened, bare minimum. That's DA investigator Kirk Bunch recording an interview during the investigation. Investigators had been interested enough in Jason Armstrong to ask him to take a polygraph test. Armstrong initially said he would do it, then changed his mind. 
I reached out to Jason Armstrong, but he did not respond to my messages. The prosecutor said the theory of Armstrong's involvement was, quote, unsupported by facts, that he lacked a motive. When I asked exactly how police had cleared him, the prosecutor referred vaguely to, quote, many interviews with others, including those of their star witness, Robert Woody. I asked the prosecutor to elaborate, but she did not. Armstrong had been spared the hardcore law enforcement techniques visited on the defendants. Martha Carlton Magana, who represented Baljeet Bobby Atwal, told the judge that the Armstrong angle had been, quote, dropped like a hot potato. No search warrants, no call detail records, no wiretaps. The preliminary hearing in the state of California versus Frank Carson et al. was wrapping up after 18 months. Would the defense convince the judge that the wrong people had been arrested? From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Trials of Frank Carson. I'm Christopher Gofford. This is episode seven, Trial. Microphones were not allowed in the courtroom when prosecutor Marlisa Ferreira argued her case against Frank Carson and his co-defendants at the prelim in March 2017. But she laid out the ingredients when I spoke to her. The fact that the, the, the missing person was last seen on his property the fact that he was covering it up, that he hired these people to act as centurions on his property. The DA relied heavily on witnesses who claimed that Carson had angrily confronted people he suspected of stealing from him, that he'd looked through their cars, even threatened to make them vanish. The defense painted these witnesses as, quote, a methamphetamine-induced theft ring who had victimized the Carson property. The prosecutor repeatedly used a tactic that infuriated the defense. This was to impute criminal intent to behavior that was totally legal and constitutionally protected, and, for any defense attorney distrustful of police, totally rational. For instance, Carson had told his mother not to allow police on their property without a warrant. To prosecutor Marlisa Ferreira, this showed, quote, a consciousness of guilt. If you have nothing to hide, she told the judge, quote, then why do you need to get a warrant? She said his run for DA was a bold attempt to thwart the investigation, and she said it was suspicious that he had hired private investigators when he became a focus of police interest. Carson's defense attorney, Percy Martinez, shot back, there is nothing sinister or illegal about using private investigators. You know, you would think that people had known me for 30 years. It's just stupid. I mean, I, it's just stupid. This case was not easy for me to decide, Judge Barbara Zuniga said on day 200 of the preliminary hearing in April 2017. Gosh, this was hard. I really had a hard time getting my head around it. There were six defendants before the judge, 
Carson, his wife and stepdaughter, the two Atwal brothers, and former CHP officer Walter Wells. Two other CHP officers, Scott McFarland and Eduardo Quintanar, were expected to have their cases heard in separate proceedings. At this point, the DA needed only to establish probable cause that the defendants were guilty. Even by that low standard, Zuniga found there was no evidence that Carson's wife, Georgia, or his stepdaughter, Christina, had committed any crime. She dismissed the charges against them. The judge ruled Walter Wells should stand trial on a charge of obstruction of justice. She thought the cell phone evidence suggested that Walter Wells had possessed the missing Kaufman's phone. Judge Zuniga believed the word of parolee Michael Cooley and his associates when they claimed Carson had threatened violence against them. You know, maybe it's because I've been around for such a long time, said the judge, who was in her early 70s. I know that even though people are convicted murderers, drug dealers, robbers, that they can also tell the truth. Judge Zuniga was moved by the DA's argument that Carson had no good reason to enlist private eyes to look into the case. An experienced criminal attorney does not hire several investigators to investigate a missing person, Zuniga said. That does not make any sense. What about the government's star witness, Robert Woody? He had been threatened with the death penalty if he didn't cooperate with police, had threatened suicide during a grueling interrogation, and repeatedly begged police to tell him what they wanted him to say, even if it was false. Earlier, Judge Zuniga had said he may not have book learning like we do, but he has a lot of street smarts, adding that he was not, quote, a vulnerable individual who was led astray by the police officers. Now, she noted there were at least 200 inconsistencies in his accounts and that he had admitted to lying numerous times. In spite of all that, the judge said, there is an overarching consistency in his testimony which lends to his credibility. She thought he was credible when he testified to Kaufman's death at the hands of Bobby Atwal and his brother, to the burial beside their liquor store, and to the body's disposal in the mountains. Zuniga had not been persuaded by the defense's bid to shift suspicion to Jason Armstrong. The evidence shows that it was Mr. Carson who set this whole process in motion, Zuniga said. He made the threats to shoot and kill people on his property. And so, in May 2017, Carson's wife and stepdaughter were free. But Carson, the Atwal brothers, and Walter Wells would have to face trial. Carson told me he was not surprised. Not with this judge. We had no illusions by then. She had made it clear that, uh, you know, her heart and soul was with the prosecution. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I gave Judge Zuniga a chance to comment and she declined. Around the time Carson's murder trial finally started in early 2018, Carson's health deteriorated. Eventually what happened was that the blood pressure overworks everything. And then my, I experienced kidney failure. 
Carson got a temporary port in his chest in a location that made infections potentially lethal. This is a line that goes directly to my heart. Judge Zuniga presided over the trial as she had the prelim. She was a small-boned woman with a fondness for big gold earrings. Her glasses perched on the tip of her nose. Behind her sat little statuettes of wolves that she had brought in. One of the wolves was gazing downward as if to study some law papers, and the other howled silently at the ceiling. The trial's pace was excruciating, and Zuniga seemed more a hostage to the proceedings than a conductor. Witness testimony was interrupted by frequent objections from the lawyers, prompting the judge to summon them to her bench for private discussions called sidebars. Many judges keep them to a minimum to keep the courtroom action rolling. But Zuniga was indulgent with the sidebars, at times allowing three in the space of ten minutes. Lawyers would rise and trudge wearily forth while a bailiff placed a disc-shaped white noise machine on the rail in front of jurors to ensure they did not overhear. Sometimes Zuniga would scold and lecture the lawyers for a half hour, her voice at times barely above a whisper. This case is exhausting for me, she complained. The courtroom had wood-paneled walls and wooden spectator benches, key scratched with graffiti. Most days there were few visitors. In the front row sat three Punjabi translators for the Atwal brothers, and behind them sat Carson's 91-year-old mom, taking careful notes. Many of the prosecution's claims relied heavily on accounts from Stanislaus County's Addict Underworld. And from the start, the DA had trumpeted the conclusions of a cell phone expert who claimed that on the night Kaufman supposedly vanished from Carson's weedy lot in Turlock, cell tower records put the Atwal brothers' phones in that area. The defense says the Atwals were at the Poppincork that night and relentlessly attacked the government experts' methods. The expert, Jim Cook, who had made nearly $400,000 on the case, admitted he had done his mapping using the eyeball method and a protractor. This is Carson's attorney, Percy Martinez. What that represents is that they were willing to pay anybody anything in order to give them testimony that would implicate Frank Carson. It didn't matter how much it cost them, and it didn't have to be accurate. The defense challenged Cook. Why hadn't he done his calculations using a modern tool like Google Earth? After court one night, he finally did. Out of curiosity, he said, and emailed the results to the DA. When the defense showed up in court soon after, they received the belated Google Earth map. To the defense, it was a welcome surprise. This map, generated by the government's own expert, remember, favored the defense. It showed Carson's property fell outside the range where the Atwals were shown to be on the night in question. I reached out to Jim Cook for comment, but he did not respond. The prosecutor says Google Earth is a flawed method because it doesn't take obstructions into account and stands by Cook's conclusions. But in the end, the cell phone expert proved a calamity for the government's case, with even the judge rolling her eyes at the mention of the, quote, protractor and eyeballing method. If you can't get emotional about this case, then, then you, know, you, you know, your heart's not beating. Of the three defense lawyers in trial, Jai Gohill was the most like Carson in his flamboyant disdain for the DA team. 
And it's kind of funny. I thought I was the one that was being the most aggressive. And I remember Frank sometimes would tell me, man, you just got it, you know, you're just not going at him hard enough. I'm like, wow, okay. Well, you know, the Gohill openly accused Ferreira of framing the defendants. Your case is in shambles, Gohill told the prosecutor at one sidebar. As the case dragged on, the rancor between the two became more and more obvious. She just shaking her head at me and saying, you're such a clown. She said something to that effect. You're such a clown. One of the defense team's motifs was how a long-standing hatred toward Carson had warped the whole investigation. And one of their main targets was veteran DA investigator Kirk Bunch, who sat quietly next to the prosecutor every day in court. And I said, you know what, the only thing that's funny is your case. And then I turned to Mr. Bunch and said, and your investigation. That's the only thing that's a joke in this, in this courtroom. Carson had attacked Bunch for years in harshly personal terms. Yet when Bunch took the stand, he insisted he harbored no animosity toward the defendant. Steve Jacobson, another DA investigator on the case, also denied any antipathy toward Carson, though his vexed history with Carson went back to the 1990s. Carson had actually taken out an ad in Jacobson's hometown newspaper attacking him. At trial, jurors were shown a photo of an angry-looking Jacobson that Frank Carson had snapped himself in the courthouse in 2010, just before Jacobson had grabbed at the camera and sent it clattering to the floor. Jacobson explained that Carson had been provoking him, and he was trying to defuse the situation. Defense attorney Jai Gohill enlarged the photo like a smash close-up in a horror movie so that jurors could not miss the approaching lawman's scowl. Is this you as you are trying to defuse the situation, Investigator Jacobson? Yes, sir, it is. Carson remembered another encounter in which Jacobson had mocked his weight. He said, how's it going, fat boy? Carson whispered to his attorney, Percy Martinez, to ask Jacobson about it. On the stand, Jacobson admitted he had in fact called him fat boy. His truth self comes out. But this is a guy that claims he has absolutely no bias. You understand the significance? I could not reach Jacobson for comment. I asked Ferreira and her boss, Stanislaus County DA Birgit Flatiger, about their office's rancorous history with Frank Carson. Why well, pick guys who um, have long histories of acrimony with the suspect to investigate him? So what you need to keep in mind, the acrimony you're talking about is coming from Frank. Yeah. Right? He's the one that is creating, I mean, he attacks, right? And, and what you may or may not know is that's just, that's his style and that's how he operates. And so he'll, he'll, he'll pick this investigator on this case and this investigator on that case. And, if, and the way we approached assignments was to say, well, anyone that Frank Carson has not attacked We'll work on this case. We that would be no one. We have anybody working on this case. <laughs> no one. In late March 2019, the trial was deep into its second year, with 130 state witnesses so far and more to come. Carson, 64 years old, was in great pain. He often stood against the courtroom wall, his head on his forearm, one hand on his inflamed lower back. 
Carson was going to dialysis in the mornings, and Percy Martinez would sometimes need to nudge him awake. I, I could just hug him and say, hey, it's all going to end, but it, it, they've already succeeded, and they know they have. There's no reason why a trial should take a year to put on, and they're just prolonging it. They've accomplished one of the things that they wanted to accomplish, and that was to take them out of circulation. At one point, Ferreira put a meth dealer on the stand to testify that Corey Kaufman had claimed the Atwal brothers had once kidnapped him and trapped him in their trunk. The defense portrayed this as absurd, considering Kaufman had never shared this near-death episode with friends and family and had not stopped going to the brothers' liquor store. At another point, Ferreira had put on a jailhouse snitch who claimed Daljeet Atwal, while in custody, had confessed to shooting Kaufman. The defense mocked this as the fabrication of a man hoping for a break on his own murder charge. When he wasn't in trial, Carson was trying to keep his law practice going. Some of his cases were literally across the hall from where he was standing trial. I gotta try to survive. I gotta try to keep my marriage together. I gotta try to keep what semblance of an office. And there are people that need me. I represented before on homicide cases and they still need me. Carson's dialysis port became infected in May 2019 in the trial's 16th month and he lay close to death in the ER. The defense team tried to keep it a secret for as long as possible. They describe it as uh, sepsis, which is you're kind of infected and rotting. I was talking to Carson in his living room in Modesto with his wife Georgia and Percy Martinez. Carson was just out of the hospital with a new port in his side and an eight-week regimen of heavy antibiotics. Carson believed that jurors would acquit him, would have to acquit him if they looked at the evidence with clear eyes. But he said even if he won, he was damaged goods. Some would always see him as the lawyer who somehow got away with murder. We're devastated. I don't know that I can ever practice again. I don't know that I want to. They've drained us financially. They've drained us emotionally. It's hard on my marriage. It's ruined my career. Now, people can say, well, people still like you and that. They're afraid of me. I'm damaged goods. Whether you're acquitted or not, there's always a certain percentage of people that think you did it or that you, 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 you know, or that you got off on a technicality. We have our family and we have our friends that believe in us. But there's only four people in the world that really know what we did and didn't do, and that's us. You know, you're soiled. You're tainted. The defense had finally mentioned Carson's illness to the judge. It was no longer possible to conceal it. The reason we kind of came clean uh, the day before yesterday, because I didn't tell anybody anything. I didn't want them to get the satisfaction of knowing 
how sick I was or that I was, uh, because their whole purpose in this thing from the day one was for me to crawl like a dog. But I do have confidence in the jury system and I do believe in it and I've got a hope that they get it. But what do they give you back out of your life? The defense believed that Prosecutor Marlisa Ferreira's strategy was to drag out the trial as long as possible. She's not making any friends. She's, she's not thinking this through. She, they are thinking this through. They're trying to get that jury to quit. Right. That's, That's all it is, because the jury, they're not trying to get the jury to like him, in, that's for sure. No, no. They want the jury to quit. They want the jury to say, okay, this is too long. I quit. No, no. I quit. The jury is so invested now, I think they're just getting stubborn. They're digging yeah, they in their are. heels, they... and they're saying, we're not quitting. I asked Carson how much the case had cost him. He said he couldn't even calculate it. And he said he had learned to cut his own hair in jail without a mirror. And as a cost-saving measure, he had been doing it that way since he got out. And it looks like it. All this time I've been proud, No, you go get yourself an $8 haircut and just spring for it, honey, I'll buy. <laughs> Percy Martinez's wife, Mary, was an integral part of the defense team. She was certain it unsettled the government to watch Carson defiantly at work in the courthouse. That's one thing that must gall Marlisa, though, is Frank back walking the halls of Mm -hmm. Stanislaus County with murder charges. Who does that? (laughs) Only Stanislaus County. No, that was the best thing. He doesn't act like a murderer. I know, right? Well, Living well is the best revenge. The clerk and he has to use their stapler. They have concluded because things haven't gone well for them, by my estimate, that they're better off with a mistrial, by far better off with a mistrial, because I can't survive another trial. And they know that. And I try to not draw attention to myself. But anybody that doesn't can't figure out that I'm in agony on some of this, you know, where I'm, I'm having to stand up, trying to stretch my back, and all that, they, they are willfully blind. Prosecutor Marlisa Ferreira told me, quote, no DA ever wants a mistrial. That is absurd. And she says the delays were the defense's fault, owing to their many objections and scheduling problems. Still, if the jurors quit, if the judge declared a mistrial, they would have to start over from witness number one. The state had the resources to do it all over again. Even if Carson was healthy enough to endure it, he did not have the money. Soon Carson returned to his merciless schedule. Every Tuesday and Thursday at 4.30 a.m. he was at the dialysis center in the strip mall by Walmart. To dull his back pain, he took Vicodin and a piece of THC-infused chocolate. Back at his office, he slipped on a shirt and tie and then headed to court in downtown Modesto, lumbering between courtrooms with his black leather bag. One morning he found himself before Judge Linda McFadden, the judge who had fined him for shouting at her six years earlier. They were cordial to each other. She did not seem to hold a grudge against Carson, 
who was here now representing a man charged with doing donut skids in his car. Delicately, the judge said she'd heard that Carson's other trial, the one in which he was a defendant, might be ending soon. This prompted Carson to take a dig at Judge Zuniga, implying that she was allowing the trial to drag out because it was personally profitable. Our judge just bought a new car, a Mercedes, Carson said, so the trial has to go on. Judge McFadden clearly didn't want to be seen criticizing a fellow judge. She smiled uncertainly and said, I don't know about that. Her tone remained polite. Thank you, Mr. Carson. Have a good day. Yeah, she, she didn't want to react. She, saw, she knew what I was doing, but she wouldn't, she wouldn't dignify it. See, that, see that that's it? a judicial temperament. I'm the juvenile. And in a way, you're making fun of judges, and I, I, I slam judges. Because if you talk about how stupid one judge is, they think that, you know, if one judge is stupid, they could all be stupid. I used to explain it that I'm the easiest guy in the world uh, to get along with as long as I get my way, you know. And if you just do the right thing, like I suggest, what's to argue, you know. A lot of what I say is tongue-in-cheek. It, it really is tongue-in-cheek. And I know that it's stupid. And Back in Department 2 that week, Judge Zuniga sat on the bench before her twin wolf statues and listened to lawyers arguing about how many rebuttal witnesses the state should be allowed to call after putting on 140 witnesses already. The case could easily drag out through the summer if the DA was given free reign. When I signed on for this case, I had no idea I would be here four years later, Zuniga said, describing the experience as excruciating. It is the rancor, it is the fighting, it is the number of sidebars, Zuniga said. She had had many opportunities to limit the evidence or throw out the charges, but seemed to view herself as another victim of the proceeding rather than one of its chief abettors. Carson knew that if he won and lived long enough to bring a lawsuit for malicious prosecution, it would take years to work its way through the courts. My bitter, you bet. But I, I don't think about those things because that's all in the future. And I may be doing good just to keep breathing. All the hate you carry with you uh, only hurts you. And I get that. But I also know that I, I, I don't feel I can let these people get away with this. And it's not only just for me, but if they would do this to me, They'll do it to anybody. They'll do it to anybody. Carson was thinking about his father, who died in 2012, just as the investigation began. He had not lived to see his son in handcuffs. My father was a good guy. I'm just happy that my father didn't see this. Not that he'd be ashamed of me. I don't believe that. But it would have worried me. It would have just killed my father. The defense confronted its big decision, whether Frank Carson would testify. 
He'd been adamant that he wanted to take the stand, but his lawyer, Percy Martinez, was worried about him. Carson was volatile. He muttered angrily to himself from the defense table. Would he be able to restrain himself under cross-examination? Would he lose his temper and curse at the prosecutor in front of the jury? That wouldn't help their cause. Plus, Carson was a shell of his former self. He'd take the stand tired, sick, and weak, and the DA might take advantage of this. Martinez did not want to see this. They decided he wouldn't testify. It was clear the jurors were tired after more than a year. It was impossible to know how they were assessing the evidence. Were they hanging in because they were determined to get what they thought was justice for Corey Kaufman with guilty verdicts? Or because they saw innocence and didn't want another jury to blow it? Ferreira gave her closing argument and rebuttals over the course of four days. The transcript runs more than 400 pages. She described Carson as, quote, the mastermind and the puppeteer of a conspiracy that led to Corey Kaufman's death. Carson had deeply distrusted the investigation and the investigators, but Ferreira urged the jurors to find malevolent meaning in his refusal to answer their questions. What does that tell you? Consciousness of guilt, Ferreira said. Carson had given his stepdaughter a letter to rebuff police if they came to question her. And Ferreira told jurors this was evidence of, quote, a guilty, guilty mind. At one point, Ferreira told jurors, quote, you might not get a bunch of hard evidence in this case. You have some, you have a lot of testimony and eyewitness testimony. She pointed again to Robert Woody, describing him as, quote, an eyewitness to this murder, the witness that tells you why you should convict. Robert Woody tells us exactly what happens. Defense attorneys had converged on a strategy to handle Woody's testimony. It could be boiled down to a single sentence. Robert Woody was a victim too. If Robert Woody was telling the truth, then you should convict my client. You know, it's kind of, it was very simple in, the, in, in that sense. And this is Hans Jachtensen, who represented Daljeet Atwal. And in reality, you know, uh, I don't think that Robert Woody received the representation that he should have been receiving from his own attorneys. And if no one is there for you, you got to do what you got to do. And that's what he did. Woody had landed himself in jail with a lurid story about dismembering the victim then insisted he made it all up to impress a woman. But his own court-appointed attorney encouraged his cooperation with police. The reward would be his freedom. And he's actually the guy who, in the end, suffered the most. And he was used and thrown out by the, by the, the investigators and the prosecutor in this case. Defense attorney Jai Gohill, who represented Bobby Atwal, found his voice thick with emotion as he made his closing argument to jurors. You can't cry in this case, you can't cry in any case. I mean, it was a tragedy what happened here. So, I, and, and including to, to, to Corey, you know, and the fact that they, 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 they're not really looking for his true killer. So, in this case, Robert Woody changed the story a million times, but they were so desperate, he was all they had. They were so desperate to get Frank that they just overlooked it. The defense characterized the government theory as a crazy quilt of bad inferences, perjured testimony, 
and junk science stitched together in a vengeful bid to destroy a criminal defense attorney who had done his job too well. The defense told jurors that the government in its mania to arrest Frank Carson had overlooked more viable candidates for Kaufman's death. In the prelim, they'd focused on Jason Armstrong. In trial, they focused on Big Mike Cooley, the aging outlaw and heroin addict who claimed he had loved Kaufman like a son. He had been one of the last to see Corey Kaufman alive, and he'd made an odd admission that after his friend disappeared, he buried his bicycle under a tree in his yard. Can I say something, please? Uh-huh. I was the one that called the cops on Corey. I was the one that reported him missing. Now, it would be pretty fucking stupid if you guys think that I hurt him or killed that kid. To help make the case against Cooley, the defense pointed to Charlie O'Dell, a dope user who regarded Cooley as a street uncle. He said Cooley threatened people with his knives if he thought they'd burned him. And around the time Corey Kaufman disappeared, Odell said, Cooley told him he had, quote, got rid of somebody. And he said, you know, that, quote unquote, that's what the motherfucker gets for playing with our money. I did try to reach Mike Cooley for his response, but he never returned my calls. It was officially day 244 of trial when Percy Martinez gave a detailed and passionate summation to jurors. He said evidence pointed solidly at Cooley and away from Carson. Martinez offered a parable that echoed Carson's signature story about the maggot-ridden payday bar. A man travels to a fancy New York restaurant for the country's best lamb stew, but the first bite is rotten. The waiter suggests that he dig through the stew for a better piece. And that's what they're asking you to do, Martinez said. This case is rotten. Throw it all away. The defense showed the jury a photo of Corey Kaufman's gravestone. It listed his date of death as March 29, 2012. This was when his stepfather, Kevin Pickett, insisted he had disappeared. This was important because the state's theory hinged on Michael Cooley's account of Kaufman disappearing on Carson's property March 30th. He was the one that really from the outset said, look, I know when my son went missing, it was the 29th, which was critical. It totally undermined their case. As the closing arguments continued, Carson's attorney, Percy Martinez, was at home unwinding with a drink at his pool table. He was in his late 60s, a little older than Carson. After four years of off-the-chart stress, four years of fighting through a marathon preliminary hearing and an epic trial, four years of sitting in court beside a client he loved like a brother, his job was basically done. He'd done everything he could, and now he just had to wait. Wielding the pool cue, Martinez missed what should have been an easy shot. He had just enough time to think, that's strange, before he was on the ground. He was rushed to the ER, a stroke. He was in a hospital bed as the case finally went to the jury. The jury began deliberating on a Wednesday afternoon. Wednesday passed with no verdict, and then Thursday. 
There were mountains of evidence to consider, terabytes of information, more than a hundred witnesses. Were jurors stumbling on something? Were they swayed by the DA's case? Was it possible they believed Robert Woody, as the judge herself had at the prelim? If just one of the twelve jurors was unshakably convinced of the star witness's credibility, they'd have a hung jury. They'd have to go to trial all over again. For the defense, that would be a crushing defeat, tantamount in Carson's view to a death sentence. For victory, they needed all 12. The Trials of Frank Carson is written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford, for the Los Angeles Times. Our producers are Lori Galaretta and Sabrina Fang. Alex McGinnis is our composer and sound designer. Misha Stanton is our mix engineer. Our editor is Steve Clow. Our executive producers are Ben Adair at Western Sound and Abby Fentress-Swanson at the LA Times. Special thanks to Shelby Grad, Julia Turner, and Kimmy Yoshino. If you like what you're hearing, Become a Los Angeles Times subscriber. You'll get special bonus episodes of this podcast. Hi, it's your host, Christopher Gofford again. Here's a reminder that LA Times subscriber support makes podcasts like this one possible. Subscribe now to get exclusive bonus episodes that will give you the story behind this show. We will share interviews with experts who will weigh in on the case and we will play extra tape that sheds light on important parts of our story. Subscribe today to listen. Go to latimes.com forward slash exclusive dash podcasts. Thanks.